Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Rosie on the House. Well, we're going to cover in this particular hour, you know, one of the things, just one of the things we do here at Rosie on the House is uh, we answer your questions every Saturday live on the radio. Those questions get posted to our website where the answer lives forever in perpetuity so that you can always have the website as a, res- as a resource, as an encyclopedia, really, for Arizona home ownership brought to you by us with the most current and the most accurate information absolutely possible you can find anywhere. So what we do is between the phone calls we take in the office during the week, the phone calls we take here on the show during the weekend, the inquiries we get over the internet to our to our uh, website, we consolidate those. And sometime after Thanksgiving, we start counting those up and tallying them up, and we come up with a top 10 questions that have been the most frequently asked by you, the Arizona homeowner, in two separate categories. In our 10 o'clock hour, we have the do-it-yourself tip of the week, which we kind of try and coach and and encourage you along to try something on on your own with your own two hands around your own house, home, castle, or cabin. And we're going to cover this hour the five do-it-yourself questions we were at the top five that we were asked this year in 2023 so in true david letterman fashion we'll start with number five right now isn't that the way he did it was five to one start at the bottom and go to the top isn't that that his gimmick um let's start he did 10 but it's too hard to cover that much content we we can't cover 10 in an hour not (laughs) not with not not properly can't do it well, it's, it's uh, no surprise that this one made it into the top ten. Uh, it's a question that, that, that gets asked more and more often as we head into the summer, as the days get longer and the heat gets more intense and the air conditioning bills get more expensive. It's the art and the science of super cooling. People want to know, what is that? What is this thing you always call about super cooling? How do we do that? And what benefit do I get from doing it? All right. And it's hard to get somebody who's never done it before because it's the complete opposite of what advertising has trained you to think about operating your electricity. Now, I ought to say that even the power companies now promote super cooling. So that's helped uh, raise the awareness. It. It helps when the largest utility companies in Arizona start sending you out notices on how to do this. <laughs> uh, but that's because when you do it, it's a win, win, win. It's a win for you in comfort and reduced costs. It's a win for the utility company because their power load becomes much more demand manageable. And it's a win for Mother Earth because they're, they're going to push off for an entire generation the need to build another power generating station. So if everybody would do it, we'd basically be set for another generation if we could just get people to do it. But Romy, you're so right. People fight me all the time. I don't have the guts to do that. I'm never gonna try that. Rosie, are you gonna make up the difference on my bill if it doesn't work? And I've actually accepted that challenges with many homeowners. Yeah, 
Yeah, if you do what I tell you, if you let me come over to your house and coach you and lock your thermostat and don't let you touch it, if your bill's higher, I'll pay you. I'll pay you two for one. Every dollar it's higher than it was this time last year, I'll pay you two bucks. So what we've been trained in the past to think is, oh, you just have to live more uncomfortable. You know, it's, you can't live at 72. You got to live at 74. You can't live at 74. You got to live at 76. Let that keep inching up higher and higher and higher. And what super cooling does is it gets rid of what they call in the utility, electric utility industry, the duck's back. And what that refers to is how when everybody comes home at the end of the business day and starts to consume a lot of power, the you look at the demand rise and fall and it looks like it's going over the back of a duck. And they're trying to eliminate that because they have to ramp up electrical production to keep up with the anticipated demand that's coming. You know, ovens going on, dishwashers going on, washing machines going on, people coming home from soccer, kids taking showers, lights are on, entertainment systems on. Or the biggest mistake, you've turned your air conditioning up to 82 while the house was gone empty all day. You get home at 5.30 in the afternoon. I can't stand this. It's 109 degrees outside. Your house is 86 degrees inside. And you compulsively go to the thermostat. I'm going to crank it down get comfortable here. And so that mindset is stored heating. What we're talking about is stored cooling by supercooling. Absolutely. So here's what we want y'all to do to think about. It is counterintuitive, but it is becoming more and more mainstream all the time. The utility companies have to generate power to match peak loads. That's why that, that, that little state off to the west of us with that little power company they got trying to supply all those people power have rolling brownouts because they can't keep up with the peak demands that the power grid is asking it to deliver. So some genius, unspoken genius, I don't know who it was, decided, why don't we charge people more money when the demand is highest? It's basic laissez-faire, free enterprise. Let's charge them more when the demand is higher and when the demand is low at 2 o'clock in the morning. Let's give the electricity away at a 75% discount for anybody that can use it. It's called the peak load. You try and take your home and situate it. So when everybody else is at peak load, your house is sound asleep. And the electric meter is almost stationary. It's not turning. So when they're charging you, 20, 22, 24 cents a kilowatt, you're not buying any of it. But when it goes off peak and they're selling exactly the same electricity at 75% reduction, four, five, and six cents a kilowatt, you're gobbling it up and you're filling your house up as full as you can take it. And you're saving money. So you're turning your home into a cool storage facility when the electricity is cheap. When it goes off peak, and I'm going to talk to you about my house. When electricity goes off peak, my thermostats all ask the air conditioners to take my house 
to 68 degrees. That's in the middle of June, the middle of July, the middle of August, the middle of September. And my air conditioners work from about 7.15 in the evening to about 1 in the morning, getting my house to 68 degrees. And they come on once or twice more, about 3.30 in the morning, about 5.30 in the morning. And then they'll come on a little bit in the later morning. All of that power, I've just, I can consume 400% more electricity in that time span than I can on peak and live more comfortable. I live with better indoor air quality because my air conditioner is running longer. It's filtering the air better. I live with less hot and cool spots in my house. My house is within a half a degree, no matter where you go in the home. Okay. Hey, my home was built in 19, 1966 by an auto mechanic. Yeah, we've done a little remodeling to it, but, it, but it's no science laboratory, I'll tell you that. Um, this does not work very well for homes that are insulated poorly. Be, because like ice melts fast in a cheap ice box, what cooling you've pumped in your house dissipates fast if you have very poor insulation. So I pump my house, my, my favorite leather chair in the living room, my couch in the living room, my two couches in the breakfast room, all the clothes in the closet, the draperies hanging over the, cur the, the windows, the carpet in the house, the cabinets, everything inside is brought down to that super cool temperature and then when the peak load hits, my thermostats say, hey, it's okay, air conditioners, if my house sneaks up to 76 degrees. I can live with that until off-peak hits again. And my air conditioners never, ever turn back on on-peak. My demand limit is kept to under 5, and my total kilowatt consumption average at the end of the month is under 10 cents a kilowatt. And there's nothing scientific about it. You can all do it. And it's covered in great detail under the topic of supercooling at Rosie on the house. That's number five. Number five. And, you know, I was resistant to it at first because I thought if I keep my home too cool in the summer, I'm not going to want to go outside because <laughs> it's going to be such a drastic swing from temperature to temperature. So I had always just played it, the game that, you know, I'll keep my home no more than 30 degrees what's outside. You know, okay. so if it's 115 outside, you know, 85. Ooh. If it's, you know, 30 at night, you know, it's never going to get warmer than 60 inside. I just, I felt like I needed to keep acclimated to the temperature outside. But what I had found when I finally tried it is it's actually easier to make the transition because you rest so much better when it's a super cooled home in the summer. You, know, you don't wake up exhausted or three pounds lighter because you've sweated off. And you're able to re-energize and, and regenerate your body so much easier that it's it's actually easier to go and make that transition out into whatever extreme heat or cool you're going into because your, your body's so much better rested because you're comfortable. So 
When we get back, we will get to number four. Here we are at Rosie on the House, where in this hour, we're covering the five most frequently do-it-yourself questions we were asked at Rosie on the House this year. We just covered number five. Number four also is a hot summer topic. I never use my swimming pool. Is there a way to cover it? And you can obviously tell that somebody more often than not, the kids are gone from the house. And it's just not the attraction draw it used to be. Um, There's a lot of things you can do uh, if you don't have the pool anymore. One of the top features that we talk about is what's called a deck over. So you drain the pool completely. They install a sump pump at the bottom of the pool that then runs to where the pool, you know, skimmer basket is. So anytime water gets down there from rain or you know, whatever the case, maybe you're hosing off the top of your deck over in your surrounding area. That water then gets pumped out so it doesn't accumulate, which, you know, bring, start molding and skeeters, skeeters and all kinds of undesirables. So once that's done, then they come in and they put in, you know, around the perimeter of the pool on the interior, they install these, you know, the, the structure for a deck to go over the top so that when the final planks on the deck are done, they're completely level with whatever decking material is around your pool. So you've got the pool still existing in retirement, but it's got a deck over it. And some people do put storage in it, but you've got to be really careful what you use under there for storage. Because in that it's not, big hole underneath the deck. Yeah, it's not okay. waterproof, um, the deck over. It's just like any other deck. So, you know, it's got to be something that's in plastic bins that are you know resistant to, to the elements in the rain. But you do. You gain that storage. You gain that level area. And how why we like this more often than not than just having the pool demolition and removed, a lot of times the equipment to do a proper demolition can't get back into your yard without knocking down some concrete walls. Uh, there's a certain amount of the pool that has to be excavated a certain amount of the bottom that has to be drilled out because if you just buried the pool without doing anything, moisture doesn't have a way to drain or wick out below that pool bottom, and it's made to hold water, so it's not going to. (laughs) And over a couple of years, as rain and water continues to go in there and fill up and fill up and fill up, well, eventually, uh, I don't know. You got a mess. (laughs) You've got a mess. And you actually have to record on your deed. That that demolished pool is sitting underneath the backyard. Yeah. That has to be on your deed. You know, and so otherwise you're just kind of like this big mud sinkhole that can develop. So to to properly demolish a pool and cover it in is a lot more work. And then on top of that, how many of y'all searching for a home in Arizona at one point in your life and a requirement was it had to have a pool? Well, in this case, it takes a little bit to bring it out of retirement. You got to get all the boards back off. You got to remove the wood structure underneath that was holding the deck over up. You got to replaster it, get a few things going. But it's a fraction of what it would cost somebody else to have to come in and build a pool if one didn't exist. So you reclaim the area, but keep it as a as a sellable 
talking point at the you know at the time you are looking to list your home? Oh gosh, if Jennifer wasn't the pool gal at our house, that pool would have been filled in a long time ago at my house. I'll tell you that. I missed my chance. <laughs> When all the kids left, I thought, this is it. I got the bulldozer. I pulled it into the backyard, and it needed some fuel. So I had to run up to the station and get some fuel. When I got back, there were grandkids swimming in the pool and a big red flag, no papa. And Deckover's been a partner with this for over 10 years. It's probably over 15 at this point. It's very but, innovative. It's very smart. Well, I was going to say, what what's really neat about his process with GPS and precision tracking and everything, they used to have to bring all the lumber on site and build it and cut it one plank at a time. Well, they can come and get the measurements, you know, laser mm. laser tight, go back pre-cut and stack all the boards properly at their yard, come back, put in the structure frame. Once that's done, stacking those boards on top, it just they can just fly cuz everything's pre-cut and in place. So it's less of a mess, less of sawdust, less noise in your yard. They're constantly improving their methods. I've seen them with putting greens on there, right? Oh, yeah. You can go you back can, over You can top. put big umbrellas on there. You can put tables, chairs. So it really is an absolutely perfectly usable structural deck. It's over your old pool. And if you ever need to bring it out of retirement, well, it's sitting there for you. There you go. So that's number four. Now, not in the top five yeah. but worth honorable honorable mention oh, do we have an honorable as it relates to pool what are the pros and cons of cool deck versus acrylic deck versus pavers so cool deck had been used forever and it's still probably the standard uh for pool decking acrylic is becoming uh popular because it, you, it gives you more style and look options um but there have been some problems with acrylics and the chemical reactions from the pool and then on top of that the pavers uh you know that can be a really good look again it's something that has to be done right and it depends on you know the your bond from paver to deck underneath because anytime you introduce moisture to any kind of concrete bond it'll eventually break it down so that's our honorable mention article that you can actually go look up in our DIY database in the pool section. I'll throw this one idea out. Any deck around your swimming pool, don't get carried away with dark colors. You'll be sorry. All right, continuing our conversation on the top five DIY articles from rosyonthehouse.com this year. Number four, excuse me, number five was super cooling your home. Number four was is there a way to cover my pool permanently? And number three, drywall hanging. Now, number one tip on drywall hanging, hire it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, go ahead, Romy. You've hung enough. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, that when I build my next home, one of the requirements is no drywall. Okay. And, right. uh, not because I have anything against it. It's a very common building material, but... It just seems like that's the only thing that they have for the interior of walls. And you go into enough homes, and it's like, holy cow, there's got to be something other than drywall that we can use on the interior of our homes. And I'm, I'm not going to be – I'm determined to be creative enough to find a solution. But drywall's okay. made out of gypsum, and a lot of it comes out of Las Vegas, the manufacturing plant. If you ever along 93 or 60 
and you keep seeing these truckloads of semis <laughs> with all this drywall, and you think, what the heck is going on? Well, that's just that could be any given day, and they're trucking it down to uh, commercial properties, uh, residential build sites, subdivisions. <laughs> that's that's prom- predominantly what ninety eight percent of your interior surface is you know that other two percent is your windows and doors yeah you know everything else is drywall and you start on the ceiling uh and so this is getting to the very final stages because if you're putting up your ceilings and your walls all your insulation has to be in all your conduit has to be in the lighting in place your plumbing has to be in place inspections clear inspections clear <laughs> uh you know um so much of our uh Gadgets and devices are wireless, but still, if I'm doing it, I'm running low-voltage wires for security and for devices so that I don't have to use any kind of wireless device add-on afterwards. I, I love that idea. Fire alarms, smoke alarms, carbon monoxide all, alarms. In your world, it's all hardwired. All hardwired. Okay. Let me talk a little bit just about drywall in general. It comes four foot wide, and it comes in various thicknesses. Half inch and five eighths are the most common. It comes in various colors to go with the various locations you install it in. It also comes in various lengths. A professional drywaller likes to use four foot wide, 12 foot long, okay? Now, if you want a real test in your willingness to hang sheetrock, know this. There are certain ceilings in your house, like out in the garage, that have to be hung in five-eighths sheetrock <laughs> to accomplish the fire rating. And that's heavier than half-inch. Oh, baby, is it. And why don't you take a couple 12-foot-long sheets, five-eighths-inch thick, and hang them on your garage ceiling and then determine how much more of this job do you want to do. Let's say you like it, you love it, you're going to keep doing it. Okay, the rest of the house primarily is going to be half-inch, type X. Um, and they do make a lightweight concrete, a lightweight drywall right now, but that's that that's what they uh, put on the label. You, you tell me how light it feels after about nine hours of hanging it. So the tapers will love you a lot better if you use 12-foot sheets. Once your ceiling is hung, you have to hang the top piece of the wall next. So two of you take that 12-foot sheet and go over to that wall and lift it up snug tight to the ceiling drywall that's already there. And you drive a nail or a screw into the stud and anchor it right in the middle of the sheet and go all the way down to 12-foot sheet and find every stud and put one right halfway in the sheet. Now, between the halfway mark and the outside edges, you're going to sink two more screws, one in the middle and one at the edge. The ones on the edge, you always want to seek in the tapered part of the sheetrock so that the taper doesn't have one extra nail hole to have to cover later, whether you're the taper or you hire it done. So it worked really well for two of you to pick that sheet up, walk it over the wall, let the top fall against the studs, use your forearm, drive it up tight, and then sink that first nail or screw at the two-foot mark. Once you've got the upper band all the way hung, then you should be about four foot one inch off the concrete floor. 
So then you're going to take your next sheet of sheetrock that's four foot wide, and you're going to walk it over there, and you have to pick it up off the floor that one inch. For that, we use drywall kickers. They actually are something you can use with your feet. You kick underneath the sheetrock. You step on the back like a seesaw. It lifts the sheetrock up tight to the piece you've already got hung there. And again, you sink a nail or screw at the two-foot mark, the midway span of the four-foot sheet, all the way down the full 12-foot length. Now, at the end of the sheetrock, that's called the butt joint. And you never want the top sheet and the bottom sheet butt joint to happen on the same stud. So if you've started in the inside upper left-hand corner of a room with the top sheet, the bottom sheet is going to be cut six feet long and is going to end halfway between that 12-foot sheet that's already hanging up on top then the next 12-foot sheet, and now you're stacking those butt joints in an alternating pattern so that it isn't as easy to see once you've taped it and painted it. You're trying to hide all that. And just to give you some numbers, a half-inch sheet of drywall is 1.6 pounds per square foot. So it depends on whether you're dealing with a 4 by 8 or 4 by 12 will de determine the total in uh, in weight, but uh, five and five eighths is two point two pounds, so it's a, uh, two, so it's significantly more. But if you are bound and determined to do it by yourself, you can rent drywall hoist panels. Uh, it's a tool that's got three wheels and arms, and you put the sheet of drywall on the hoist. It'll go up on the ceiling or up onto the wall, and it's got hands, and you crank it, and you move it, and you get into rotation. It's can be clumsy because it's never get you quite you know the wheels never get it, quite yeah, perfect it's... to get the 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 joints as tight as you want so there'll need to be some hand maneuvering at the end but um it's it's a lot easier to manage a, a drywall panel if you're doing this by yourself oh. with a hoist and even with two people um it's tough it's there's a reason people get paid for it. <laughs> well, man, I want to tell you that and it was one of the when, first trades I learned, and uh, with with a man named Gus, and Gus taught me all I know about hanging sheetrock. And you have these little flatback sawhorses that you, when you're hanging the ceilings, you both step up on the flatback together. The sheetrock goes on top of your head. You push it up to the ceiling joist and hold it up tight. Move it till it fits the recess cans up tight against the wall, the back edge. Once you're both happy, then you start, you, your head is holding it up there. And well, back then we used hammer and nails. Now you use screw guns and you start sinking the screws. Uh, and I, and I want to tell you, with 5 eighths inch, Gus taught me how to hang 5 eighths single-handedly. But I only did that on about three jobs. <laughs> And when you're putting your screws in, you want to make sure that it goes below the surface but doesn't Ooh, break the paper. That's really critical. So if you break the paper, you got to sink another one right by it. And especially on a ceiling, you know, it's going to take you a number of screws in there so that you can completely release it of weight and starting yeah. to add it if, without it falling off yeah don't get two screws in that ceiling piece and then step away from it it'll it'll come crashing right down so hanging sheetrock was wow tips on hanging sheetrock were one of the most popular asked questions we had and this next one Romy, is absolutely the most puzzling question 
of our entire website. Because when we posted it, how long ago? Ooh. This 25 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, it, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. I'm going to I'm gonna go to the back end and see if, okay, you, you, if you there's a the date stamp still. The, the question is, what is the correct mortar mix ratio for setting masonry block? And when you set block, you obviously have to have the mortar. We buy, you know, people are used to just buying the premix, and you never even think about mixing it by hand. Well, yeah. there's a lot more that's in there. There's Portland cement, there's lime, there's sand, and there's water. So professional crews on site you generally, historically in the past, didn't do the premix. Now, that's slowly going away as premix becomes, you know, comparable in cost uh, to mixing on site, especially considering you don't have to have a crew, a mixing crew hot, now. Hot on carriers. Site. <laughs> but, uh, you still need your hot carriers. But For you, each bag of Portland cement, you put a half bag of lime, then uh, 28 shovels of sand. It's a number, and then number two shovel. Seven to eight gallons of uh, clean water. Yep. So, and then. It ought to be about like a little bit thicker than pancake butter. You ought to be able to take your mason's trowel, scoop onto your mortar board, scoop about a half of a mason trowel full, and flick your wrist. And about three-quarters of the mud you scooped up ought to stay on your trowel. At that point, then you walk over to your block wall with the mud uh, up, and you turn the trowel sideways, and it won't just fall right off. It'll actually stay on your trowel till you drag it off intentionally onto the top of that block you're about ready to set the next layer on. And yet, unfortunately, when we switched over our website, it didn't take o- carry over the original published dates, which it was supposed to. One of the many things that it was supposed to do that didn't happen yeah. on the uh, mapping transition. So I, I don't know how long it's been on our website, but it's been there for... Well, I can tell you this. Long as time. long as it's been there, it always lives in the top 10 asked questions uh, at Rosie on the House uh, on the website. Because you can go to the website at any time and just type in your question and do the search engine. Chances are your question's already been asked once or twice before, and your answer may already live right there. You ask water heaters, and I promise you, uh, you'll get enough information back on water heaters between the articles we've written for statewide newspapers, the articles we've written for our, our uh, newsletter, the times we've covered it on air, uh, the times we've covered it for the handyman tip on television. That'll all pop up. You'll be able to study all that and actually become a water heater plumber if you study it all. Covering this hour, the five most asked questions at Rosie on the House by Arizona homeowners in the year 2023. We've already covered the top four. The uh, number one. Is it the number one? It's the one we're taking. Um, replacing I, Is replacing a shower head a do-it-yourself job? I mean, it, the analytics don't lie, so. Wow. 
And I, well, Gary, that I'm aware well, of. Roman, Gary, why, why, why would this question even be there? Why are people even thinking about doing it? If you want to save water and you want to go to something smaller, like 1.5 gallons per second, okay. or if you have a leak like I do right now, right at the threads, and I'm going to have to get a new shower head. Or, you know, or, it's 25, 30, 50 years old without a water softener, and you turn it on, and it's like taking a shower in. underneath a, 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 a water torture, just a little drip at a time, boop. I I think I think this hit our most asked question back right after the water legislation passed where they reduced the showerhead flow from from about four or five gallons a minute to one and a half gallons a minute. And everybody said, Well, Rosie, how can I take this out and remove the flow restrictor? I wanna get it back to I you know I've raised my whole life taking a five gallon a minute shower. I want that back. <laughs> but the but the variety of shower heads, I think right now the most common shower head we're putting in right now is the multi purpose. It's on a wand that you can it's handheld. Oh yeah. It's mounted on a on a on a on a sliding bar. So it can be a stationary showerhead at any height. You can take it off that and use it as a wand, cleaning the various parts of your body that are hard to reach to get up that high in the shower. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and, and then it has a dial. that you, you can adjust the type of spray is there. But let me, so regardless why you're changing it, let me just tell you one big warning. The pipe that's coming out of the wall in your shower that the shower head's attached to is called the neck. You must make sure when you're taking your shower head off that's threaded on there, you cannot let that neck spin. So someone has to wrap that neck in a good towel and a good grip, a good pair of vice grips around the towel so you're not scratching it needs to hold that completely firm while somebody else starts unscrewing the shower head. Because if you move that neck, you could, be, you could be opening a horrible nightmare of do-it-yourself plumbing repair. So make sure your hot and cold water turned off the shower valves. Hold the neck so it doesn't spin. If it just spins a little bit and you have to twist it back to get it straight and vertical, uh, that could create uh, a leak that's undetectable because it's back there behind the wall. Or worst case, as you start twisting the shower head, the neck starts moving and twists right off. And now you got yourself a first class real headache problem right there, man. Yeah, and unless you were doing a big, you know, what do they call them? The big rain head features that have yeah. 100 ports. Well, Chances are you probably don't have enough pressure in your home or your water line isn't big enough to supply it all to be adequate. A lot of people see those and they think, oh, wow, that's cool. Or they find, you know, have one in a hotel room and try it. Well, there's, there's a chance that's not going to work at your home. Particularly multi-heads in one shower. You must increase. Now, probably not only the size of the plumbing coming to your shower, but very possibly the size of the water meter and the water line coming from the meter into your house. For those large luxury bathrooms, it's kind of a it's kind of a domino effect. That's where the handheld removable shower heads Rosie was talking about really come into place. I wouldn't put one in that that wasn't a uh, you know had a wand on it. Is that what you call it? A wand? A wand? So those were our top visited DIY FAQs on our website. Some of the other 
honorable honorable mentions how do i change uh filter in the window air conditioning unit is that a joke question no <laughs> that one that one was really there i hope no so, one's depending on the filters in a window air conditioner to filter very much well i've got one and it's all metal yeah. uh, you know kind of like uh, thin chicken wire i guess it was uh, yeah 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 yeah, just have it on for a few minutes, and I'm cleaning it. Yeah. <laughs> what causes a septic system's drain field to be flooded? Ooh, we'll let you go read that one on your own. I choose not to be an expert <laughs> on, that, on, on that topic. Yuck. <laughs> What's the best way to put down sod, and do I fertilize first? So uh, I guess that just depends on what type of grass you really want, the specific sod, like what was popular with what they call bob sod you know, grown out in the field, and then they cut in sheets, roll it up, truck it, bring it to your home, roll it out like carpet uh, with the irrigation system already there, water it in, and hope for it to, to grow in in a couple of weeks. You don't even notice the seams are there anymore. But I, I'm i surprised that one's on there because you don't get that request a lot. We get a lot of people not, not too much anymore. transitioning away from that type of, of lawn. Well, and am I losing water from my toilet bowl? You know, all right. Where can they find all of these questions? If somebody wanted to pursue the ones we opted not to cover <laughs> this hour, well, all of these articles are in our DIY database. You can find individually, but if you go to our website right now, we put all these links in today's blog, the top DIY articles from 2023. So you can get the links to all these a lot quicker by just going to our homepage and clicking on the blog today. So that is uh, kind of wraps up 2023 for us. So we'll uh, see you in uh, see you in 2024.